Well, again, good morning, everyone. Hey, let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here in the middle of vacation season. And um, I know that my family was able to be away a couple of weeks ago, and it's always an amazing time to get away as a family into a different environment and kind of relax and talk about life and have some good times. So my prayer is for all of us that we'd get somewhat of maybe a little sabbatical this, this summer to where we get away and recharge our batteries. Now, I know that a lot of people are traveling in and through the summer months, and so each time that I do a teaching in this teaching series entitled There and Back Again, which is actually taken from The Hobbit, the story of There and Back Again, where Gandalf challenges the hobbits to be a group of people that would be willing to take a journey and some excitement in life, and we know that the Bible literally is a journey and God calls us on one, but one of the things that we're focusing on is a church that's biblically based, relationally driven, and spirit-led. We are focusing on, with there and back again, how the Older Testament informs the Newer Testament, and the reason for that is this. When we explore those connections between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, it is so important for our faith. Oftentimes, I think followers of Jesus really just want to know about Jesus kind of from when he arrives on Christmas, and then they want to know what happens sort of at the end of the book in the book of Revelations. But the truth be told, the understanding of Jesus is pretty much impossible unless you get the connections to the Older Testament. It's pretty much impossible to know who he is. And I've often referenced this, that it would be similar to me only wanting to know about my wife, Fran, from the time that I met her. And you would intuitively know that if I don't know the history prior to her arrival in my life, if I don't know that history, the truth of it is, there's no way I can know who Fran is, know who she is fully. And so what we're doing as a church family is again, we're exploring the connections between the Older Testament and the Newer Testament and how they really deepen, solidify, and inform our faith. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at baptism, water baptism. Because later on in the service, as you know, we have scheduled baptism. We have two children that are going to be baptized in water. And so what I wanted to do this morning is take a look at baptism from the lens of the Newer Testament into the older. Because for many of us, we probably really don't even know how the Newer Testament writers view the idea of baptism. What you're going to find is they utilize the Older Testament to do that. Now, I would ask for a show of hands, but I'm not going to. And the question is, is I often wonder how many of us have ever been baptized in water? Don't want a show of hands. Just curious. The reason why I would ask that is that the Newer Testament, as Jesus exit this earth and the first century church begins, baptism is a critical piece of what it looks like to follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus' parting words are found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Now let's push the pause button. If you knew 
you were going to see your closest friends for the very last time, what would you say to them? What would you say? Matthew 28, 19 records for us what Jesus says as he's leaving his buddies. And in the context of that conversation in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, not just Jews, but Gentiles and all people all over the world, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, isn't it amazing that Jesus, in his parting reality, puts that out there? Here's what followers of Jesus are called to do. They are called to make disciples, and in doing so, we are called to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that I want to explain briefly before we take a journey into the Older Testament to discover baptism, what water baptism is, I think one thing I want to explain is this. When you see Pastor Chris baptize these children, the two children this morning, you're going to hear him say the following, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's taken from Matthew and Jesus' departing words. But here's what's important to understand, that when Jesus is saying, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, I get that we do that literally, but ultimately what Jesus is talking about is authority. In other words, whose authority will these people be baptized in? So in other words, if, I, if you baptize someone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, it's an understanding of where your authority came from and in whose name you're doing it. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. As a pastor in Virginia, I've done countless weddings in the past 20 years. And when I do weddings, here's what I always say near the end of the wedding. It'll be something like this. And now by the power vested in me by the Commonwealth of Virginia, I now, you, uh, now announce that you are no longer two, but one. You are husband and... How many of you have ever heard that said at a wedding? Raise your hand. Now, Virginia, this is a quick aside, Virginia is unique. We're a commonwealth, not a state. And so in a commonwealth, you actually do not have witnesses that sign the wedding agreement. The pastor signs it literally as an agent of the state. That's how it works. When I did weddings in Princeton, New Jersey, there always had to be witnesses, not here. So when I perform a wedding, I'm performing a wedding in the name of, in the authority of, the commonwealth of Virginia. Do you get that? And so when Jesus says, you are to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we do quote that, but what he's really saying is that whoever baptizes is acting in the authority of the Trinity of God. 
Now, why Jesus would have said that is, would be to clear up any confusion about who God is. But if you were to read newer or further into the Newer Testament, you would discover quickly that when baptisms happen, they happen in the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the first sermon that was ever preached on the heels of Peter, that, by the way, is the second best name in the Newer Testament, but on the heels of Peter being commanded by Jesus, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus says to him and to the disciples, go into all the world, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in the very first sermon that's ever recorded in the book of Acts, Peter steps forward and he preaches a message. And when he's done preaching, explaining Jesus, the people literally shout to him, thousands of them, what are we supposed to do with what you just told us about Jesus? And here's his response. It's Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. not that amazing? Here Peter is, preaching to thousands. It's the inaugural sermon of Christianity. And when he preaches it, he says, here's what you are to do when you understand who Jesus is. You are to repent and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. He does not say in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you are baptized, you are baptized into Christ and the person that baptizes you baptizes you with the authority that Christ has given them. Now with that said, Baptism occurs 70 times in the Newer Testament. There's a reference to it, or baptism literally happens. And ultimately, as you read through the Newer Testament, you discover that baptism is something that every follower of Jesus is called to do. Every follower of Jesus. But when we look at this teaching series of There and Back Again, we're going to discover very quickly that when the New Testament writers write about baptism, they use Old Testament things to explain what baptism is. Now last week, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to watch the sermon. Last week I talked about John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. It is Googled more times on the internet so much more often than any other verse. There's not even a close second. But if you were to read John 3.16, you would discover something that the two verses before, Jesus, as he looks at John 3.16, uploads a story in the Older Testament about when Moses as he's leading the children of Israel through the desert, raises up a bronze serpent on a sign, 
And because of the rebelliousness of the people, literally this is just before John 3.16 is penned. It's the two verses before. Jesus references this story about how Moses, as he leads the people of Israel, raises up a bronze serpent on a sign because the people of Israel have moved into sin. And God sends venomous snakes in among them, and they begin to be bitten and die. And anyone who would look at that serpent will live. So even though you're rebellious, God says, sin is now biting you, it's killing you, and if you will look at that bronze serpent, you will live. And Jesus uses that to frame the cross. So what's fascinating to me is when you think about the Newer Testament, and this is key, almost every time there's a major event in the life of Jesus, it correlates to an Old Testament story involving Moses. Almost every time. You can see it in the birth of Jesus. There's a direct correlation to Moses. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospel of Luke, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke's main theme through the entire Gospel is to prove to you that Jesus is the new Moses. It's what he's doing. Because here Moses is. He's this famous Israelite leader who by miraculous intervention leads the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and he leads them towards the promised land. You see, Moses is a figure you've got to know about if you're going to know about the story of Israel. And if you're going to know about Jesus, you have to know the story of Moses. Otherwise, when the New Testament writers reference Jesus, they're doing it in a way that highlights Moses, but wants to tell you Moses ain't all that. Jesus is the ultimate Moses for you and me. So let me put it to you bluntly. If you're stuck in sin and you can't get free, there's a new Moses. His name's Jesus. And he can deliver you from bondage to slavery to sin to where you can be free and live a brand new life in him. Listen, the Older Testament highlights Moses in an incredible way. And so the Newer Testament writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tell us that Jesus is the new Moses. Not only that, but Jesus himself, even looking at the cross, takes a story of Moses and he brings it to himself and says, if you think it's amazing what Moses did, to deliver people from being bitten by the serpent. Wait till you see what I do when I'm lifted up on the cross. Now, as we look at baptism, I want you to think about something. You'll discover with me that in the Newer Testament, the Apostle Paul uses Moses and a huge event in his life to explain what water baptism is to you and to me. I want you to think for something for a moment. Do you have an event with a person in your life that when you think about that person or an event, 
it's a defining moment for you or maybe for your entire family. In other words, you can't tell the story of your family unless you tell the story of this event or this person. How many of you have someone in mind? By the way, if you're married, you ought to raise your hand right now and get yourself out of trouble. That's a defining event. I have a friend of mine who tells an incredible event. It's amazing to me. If you go to my friend's house, you'll discover that there are photographs that go back multiple generations. It's shocking. If you go visit my friend, what he will do is, when you go up the stairs of his house, if you're walking with him, he will point to each picture and tell you a story. But when he gets to one, one picture, he hones in. And he points to his great-great-grandmother. When he points to her, he's going to tell you the following story, and her husband is next to her. It's one of those old, barely legible pictures. You can barely even see the people in it. But he will tell you the story. It's the story of his family. And here's the story. His great-great-grandfather was fighting in the Civil War. And he was mortally wounded. And he was placed in a prisoner of war camp. And so, when, his, when my friend Joe's great-great-grandmother heard about the fact that he was going to die in prison, she somehow made her way, she couldn't read or write, she made her way to this prisoner of war camp, and she went in, and she was a petite tiny little woman, completely uneducated, and somehow she prayed, found the camp, and went into the camp, and she found her husband. When she found her husband, she turned to the prisoner of war commandant, the guy that was running the camp, and she said, listen, if he stays here, he's going to die. Would you please release my husband to me, and I will take him, and I will bring him back to health, and I will return him to you. Well, the camp commander said, you're out of your mind. And she wept and begged and pleaded and she badgered him. And finally, he took a piece of paper and he said, I will give you five days. It's all you get. And he wrote five. He wrote the guy's name down, wrote his name down on the pass, and he wrote the number five and he handed it to her. But she knew it was going to take her over two and a half days to get her husband home. She would literally have to turn around and bring him back, and he would die being brought back. And so here's what she did, completely illiterate. She held out that piece of paper, and she prayed. And she knew that 50 had a zero. She had no clue which side of the five to put the zero on. And so she prayed, dear God, help me. And when that, the commander had walked away, he had left his writing utensil there, and she prayed, and she looked at it, and she said, God, you got to help me, and she felt like God said to, told her to put the zero after the five, so she did. And that five-day pass became a 50-day pass. <laughs> and listen, my friend would have never existed had not that event happened. And she told that story the rest of her life. How God intervened and told her which side of a five that a zero belongs on. Let me explain something carefully. We may not have a story in our life that's as newsworthy as that, 
But what I can tell you, if you and I pause for a moment, there will be a person or multiple people, there will be an event or multiple events that when you and I sit and think about our lives, we have the clearest sense that if I'm going to tell my story, this will be part of it, and it's a story of the intervention of God. It is. When you look at the story that's getting ready to be used for water baptism, you're going to discover that as we look at this story, it's a story that is the central story of the life of Israel. If you don't tell this story, you don't know Israel. It's the most amazing time where God steps in and he does something amazing for his people. What we're going to do is we're going to read the reference in the Newer Testament now. It's the story of baptism written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. We're going to put the text up on the screen. Here the Apostle Paul is writing about baptism. And when he's explaining it for you and for me in the Newer Testament, here's how he goes about it. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, he writes, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the Red Sea. How many of you have ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments? Seen the movie? It's biblically accurate. So if you want to follow along, process in your mind, you can kind of have that image of Charlton Heston. So what you have is you've got Paul writing about baptism, and when he does, he says, listen, all of our ancestors, those Jewish people following Moses that had escaped from Pharaoh and for the Egyptian empire, they are moving towards the promised land, and as they exit bondage to slavery, they're moving towards freedom, and as they do, they pass through the Red Sea. And here's what he writes. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and ate and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, for the sake of time, we're going to be focusing on the first two verses. Here's what Paul writes. When looking at baptism, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the Red Sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, I'm just going to tell you at the outset, if I'd have known Paul, I would have suggested a different story. Maybe you're like I am. There's times where I read the Bible and I say, you know what, God? I have a suggestion. If you ever write this again, let me offer you my suggestion. Here's what I would say to God if he rewrote the Bible. Why wouldn't you just say, Jesus was baptized in water, so you need to be baptized too. Boom. Done. Go home. Why not just say that? 
Jesus baptized in water, heaven opens, God screams down, that's my boy. The dove comes down like a Holy Spirit. I mean, why doesn't Paul just say that? Just get to the point, Paul. Peter was ba- or Jesus was baptized. If you follow him, get baptized. Doesn't do that. He picks the story of Moses leading people through the Red Sea. Now, If God didn't want my suggestion of Jesus being baptized, I have another one. It's this. God, I would recommend that if you rewrite Scripture and you got to use Moses because every time something big happens in the life of Jesus, there's a correlation to Moses, here's what I would recommend for baptism. I would recommend when Moses was placed by his parents in a little reed basket and he was set out into the Nile River, And Pharaoh's daughter was out bathing, and she saw the little reed basket, and she picked up Moses, and she saved him from death, and she took him home. And because someone watched that exchange, Moses' own mother became his wet nurse, and she was able to raise him in Pharaoh's court because Pharaoh had announced that every Jewish male child must be killed at birth. So if I'm going to talk about baptism, and obviously for baptism you need water, I would recommend to God that story because it's a great one. It's about being put in the river and someone having faith to try to keep you alive. And My goodness, Pharaoh's own daughter grabs up Moses and takes him home and his mother becomes his wet nurse. And man, what a story of salvation and deliverance from the river. That's better than what God writes. Don't you think? How I feel. But you see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul doesn't do that. He writes a story. It's a story of judgment and power and deliverance. He writes a story that when any Jewish person thinks about their life, the primary event in all of the Scripture that you will ever read is the event where God delivers the children of Israel from Egypt's charioteers and God literally opens up the Red Sea and the people of God walk through on dry ground and when they get to the other side, the waters close and Egypt and Pharaoh's army drowns. And Paul says, that's the story about water baptism that I want you to know. Not the one about Jesus was baptized, so should you, even though that's true. Not the one about Moses being put in a little reed basket and Pharaoh's daughter rescuing him out of death. Not that one. But Paul talks about this story is the story we need to know when we look at baptism in water. You know, the funny thing is, when I was explaining to God this week why he should have picked a better story, here's why I told him. You know what, God? Your people didn't even get wet. <laughs> Ever think of that? If this story about baptism, they go through on dry ground. They don't even get wet. God, I have a suggestion. At least use a story where they get wet. When I was done telling God, you ever do that before you tell God about his timing or whatever God said? But the Egyptian army got wet. Ah, that's a good point, God. Good point, good point. 
But you see, when you look at the story, we're going to look at it very briefly in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. But you look at this story, it's mind-blowing. It's absolutely incredible. It's a story that if you've ever read it, grips your soul. And no Jew on God's green earth can tell you their story without referencing this one. And as we look at this story, we're just going to do it very, very quickly. It it begins at the end of Exodus chapter 13. And the story tells us that there have been a series of plagues. And the last plague, finally Pharaoh says, man, Moses, get your people, get out of here. And there's a verse that I absolutely love. It says as the people of Israel begin to get ready to move from bondage to slavery in Egypt and move towards the promised land, Moses said, hey, what? You're going to plunder the Egyptians. And he tells all the women, go to your neighbor's house, knock on their door, and ask them for all their gold and jewelry. They're going to give it to you. What an incredible thought. So the Jewish women go door to door with big baskets. They say, hey, we're leaving. Give us your precious stuff. And the people do. And it says, Israel plundered the Egyptians. And then they left. I love that. And so now they're exiting, and they're moving towards the promised land. And the Bible tells us that as they're moving out of bondage to slavery, that God appears before them in a pillar of fire by night and a protective air conditioning cloud by day. And so all the children of Israel have to do is go, up. the pillar of fire is moving, let's go. And they can travel all night because it gives light to 600,000 men plus their families. And then in the day when it gets hot, the cloud just hovers over them. It protects them. And man, what a way to go. So they're kind of moving along and everything's going great. And as they're moving along and they're kind of heading out in there, all of a sudden Pharaoh wakes up one day and he goes, hey, someone go make me a bagel. (laughs) Bagel's Jewish food, by the way. And the kitchen guy goes, you won't believe this, but the bagel maker went with Moses. He says, what? That's right. I let all the servants go and all the slaves are gone. They've all left. And Moses goes, what did I do? So he gets 600 charioteers and the rest of his army and they're going to go back after Israel and they're going to kill a bunch of their leaders and bring them back as slaves. The Bible tells us this. Israel's taking a very obvious route. And then that cloud and that pillar turn and they backtrack their steps and they are positioned right up against the Red Sea and there's no escape. And so when Pharaoh comes to the top of the hill and he looks down, there's Israel completely surrounded by the Red Sea and his armies, and they have nowhere to go. And Moses comes to God. He says, God, we got a problem. God says to Moses, guess what, Moses? Verse chapter 14, reading in verse 4, He says, but I'm going to gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. God says to Pharaoh, or God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to go, and I want you to raise your staff and stretch out your hand, and the water's going to part. I don't care who you are, that's cool. Like, really cool. 
No superhero movie has anything on this. And so Moses goes to the edge of the Red Sea. He raises his staff. He lifts up his hand. And the Bible says God sent a mighty wind, which, by the way, in the Older Testament is always the Holy Spirit. Wind and breath in the Old Testament are the Spirit of God. And when he holds up his hand and his staff, the Bible says that the, the sea go, is pushed back and it's spread wide and there's a wall of water to their right and a wall of water to their left and all night long, God's breath blows and dries the ground. And in the morning, what ends up happening is the pillar of fire that's been behind them protecting them from Pharaoh's army begins to lift and the children of Israel walk through the sea on dry ground. I don't know if you can picture that, but it sounds cool to me. You imagine walking along and you're going through the sea and you look and a great white shark is just swimming with you. And you're just pointing at him and going like, yeah, come on, buddy, I dare you. And here they are walking through the sea. And they get to the other side and the pillar of fire lifts when it does, here comes Pharaoh. And they're all standing on the shore, and this massive Egyptian army is pouring into that tunnel. And God says to Moses, lift your hand. When he does, the sea fills in, womp, and there's total quiet. What a story. It's a story of when you're moving towards freedom, and you can't get free. And you know where you're at, you don't want to be. And you know God's got a better place for you to be, but you can't figure out how to get there. And so you look at your slavery and your bondage and your brokenness and your dysfunction, and somehow you have the sense that Jesus has a better way to do life. Because what you've been doing is not working, it's not helping. It's not setting you free. As a matter of fact, as the book of Romans says, when you look at your life, the harder you try to make it right, the deeper the hole gets. And so in this story, the people have been crying out to God for 400 years. They've been crying out to the Lord, send us a deliverer, and God raises up Moses. And when he raises up Moses, Moses leads them through the sea. But let me tell you something. Their past, their slave masters are boring down on them to capture them again and to drag them back into slavery. But you know, you know what made all the difference? Was the sea. When that water closed up and covered that army that was coming to take them back into slavery again, the people of Israel we're free. And here's what the Bible says. Here's what the Bible records at the end of that event. It says in Exodus 14.30, that day the, laid, the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses, their servant. So why in the world would Paul have ever picked this story? I think you know. 
Because you see, when we step into the waters of baptism, we step into the waters of baptism, and it's that symbol that I'm intimately aware of the fact that I've been in bondage, I've been in slavery to sin, but Jesus is the new Moses, and in him, as I follow him, he's going to take me through the water, and when I go through that water, it's symbolic of Israel moving through the water and finding God's deliverance from sin and the thing that's trying to haunt them and hound them and dragged them back into slavery. What an incredible image that the Apostle Paul brings to us. And later in the Newer Testament, here's what Paul writes about baptism. You see, it's about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. In Colossians 2.12, here's what Paul writes about baptism having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, when we look at the waters of baptism and we look at what happened with Israel and Egypt and Moses, the story ends by saying when the people saw what God did to the Egyptians. They put their trust in God and in Moses. You see, water baptism is all about you and I looking at Jesus. And we put our trust in God, but we also put our trust in the new Moses. And his name is Jesus. And not only can he set me free, he has the power and the authority to keep me free. Baptism is all about moving free from the slavery to sin and death and moving towards the promised land, and Jesus is the one that gets you there. He's the one that sets you free. As we close out our time, I'm going to ask that you would take a moment where you're seated and close your eyes in God's presence. By the end of this study and prepping for this sermon, I kind of had to repent before God. And I had to admit that God's idea for this story exemplifying baptism was the best one. You see, here's why. It's the pinnacle event of the life of the Jewish people. It is the event. If this event does not happen, the story's over. But it did. And they passed through the water, and that opposing enemy was destroyed. As you're sitting here this morning, I have a question. The question's quite simple. Are you open to trusting this new Moses? His name is Jesus. I know some of us here you know that you're in bondage, you're in slavery, and you've been trying to get free, and you can't. I've got incredible news. I know one who can set you free, because that's what he's done for me. 
And that's what Scripture promises to you too. And so as we take a moment in God's presence, I've got this question. Have you ever said yes to Jesus? Have you ever said yes to Him? If you haven't, saying yes to Jesus would go something like this. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are. But what I do know is, you are the one that God sent into this world to lead me from brokenness and dysfunction and bondage into hope and peace and a future. And so Jesus, I look to you and I choose in this moment to believe, to put my faith in you, to put my hope in you, and to put my trust in you. If you've done that this morning, I want to encourage you to keep your heart open as we worship in this next song. To keep your heart open. And I also want to encourage you to share with someone, maybe the person that brought you, share with someone the commitment that you've made. We're going to worship to the song Cornerstone. And as that happens, baptism is going to be prepared for. And so let's just take a moment and stand together and let's worship Him, the one who has come to set us free.